Well, our uh, message today is going to be from 1 Kings chapter 12. If you want to turn there, if you didn't uh, see that already on your bulletin, 1 Kings chapter 12. In just a few weeks, I'll be returning to the Gospel of John, if you're wondering. Um, after, so we took a little hiatus from that during Advent. And um, I'm extending that hiatus here for, uh, for just a few weeks. As we start into the new year, I kind of want to frame our perspective um, just on the world that we are re-engaging. That's been the word I've been uh, ex- exhorting us to embrace is to uh, re-engage in 2022 and to re-engage God's world. God is still at work. As I said, he's not on plan B, he's on plan A. And we just want to always be reorienting our perspective to see how he is at work, that we might participate with him. And so uh, we want to have a light shined a little bit on what's going on in the world. So I'll I'll, uh, resume in a a few weeks through the Gospel of John. If you are visiting with us, um, we have been just going through that gospel, I think we'll pick it up in chapter 10, and that is my ordinary, ordinarily my approach, just, just preaching through uh, books of the Bible, letting God decide what the priorities and emphases deserve to be. But I want to insert uh, here in just this next few weeks, a, a, just a, a short teaching series. This will be more teachy than preachy, as I say periodically, but a short teaching series that I've entitled, What in the World is Going On? That seems like a good question, doesn't it? A really valid question. I can't promise you I've got the answer, but I'm pretty sure I'm asking the right question. What in the world is going on? In the world that we're living in, what is it that's going on? And I, I, I certainly don't have all the answers to that. By the way, I don't want to oversell here. Um, but I do want to try to shine some light on some of the factors that are at work in this period of history we're living in. And... Uh, I want to do that again by, by looking at 1 Kings chapter 12 as sort of the, I don't know, almost the hub or headquarters of this series. I'm going to even approach that a little bit differently and draw um, some principles and observations from the historical context surrounding uh, the, the series of events that unfolds in 1 Kings 12. So I won't even preach this uh, in exactly the same way. But I do, so, so we'll unpack this over a few weeks. There's lots that could be said. It won't all be said today. Aren't you glad to know I'm not going to try to say everything today that could be said about 1 Kings 12. You can say amen. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> um, but uh, but we do want to read this together and um, then get some... Uh, context on it. And so I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand as we read. It is a lot here. I'm going to read this whole chapter. Um, Again, this will be helpful at least in uh, hearing what unfolds here in this particular um, momentous occasion in the life of the people of Israel. Beginning in verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 12, hear the word of the Lord. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam the son of Nabat heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men 
who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel of the old men uh, that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer the people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, come again to me uh, the third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nabat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor. And all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. For there was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man returned to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. Verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. 
Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be, a, to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you as always for your word. And we open it always with an expectation that you have something to say to us in it. And Lord, there is so much that could be said about this text and about the whole event in history and events surrounding it, Lord. And you know what it is we need to hear today and in the weeks to come. So Lord, would you sort that out for us? As you know, we have need. And so we ask that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and our good. God, would you move me now as always out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today. For Christ's sake, amen. And you may be seated. Well, that is uh, maybe the longest passage I've ever read in one standing as you stood. So thank you for um, enduring that. Again, I think that's uh, helpful just to get the whole narrative of what unfolded there. And I'll... uh, come back to that in just a minute. But sometimes when I'm talking with people who live in more inland areas, particularly even inland states, you know, people who live in Atlanta or somewhere like that, and I, and I tell them in conversation that I'm from Wilmington, uh, sometimes I'll hear people say, oh, y'all get a lot of hurricanes there, don't you? Aren't you afraid of the hurricanes? Maybe you've heard people ask you that before. Aren't you afraid of the hurricanes? And the answer is always, in so many words, no, because we always know they're coming. Right? We, we always, it's not like you get a surprise hurricane. Uh, it's not an impossible thing, by the way, for them just to blow up out of nowhere. But generally speaking, we watch the storm system come off of the coast of Africa, right? And you're on the uh, Weather Channel or the uh, NOAA site and that kind of thing, just, just watching that thing track all the way, seeing it form into a hurricane. And all. We've got plenty of time um, to watch it, to see where, what track it's on, Um, how big of a storm is it in terms of its size, what are the wind speeds, how fast is it moving, on and on and on and on, right? You got plenty of time to make preparations. And so as we see one might be coming our way, then we do all those things um, necessary to prepare a home. And so uh, we might secure loose items outside, get plenty of car, uh, gas in the car and in the generator if you have one. Uh, You want to get it ahead of time, right? Like as soon as there might be a hint of hurricane season, go ahead and gas up the generator because everybody else is going to be at the gas station once it starts coming in, right? You want to have your flashlights and batteries, uh, have drinking water and non-perishable food and so forth. And above all things, this is just, uh, just good, wise advice. Above all things, whatever the conditions, uh, be sure you're able to make coffee in the morning. So that you're capable of making good decisions all the rest of the time. That's my advice to you. But anyway, 
It isn't as if there's, there's no risk at all, right? But generally speaking, we, we, we know what the risk is. We know that it's coming and we have, uh, we have time and opportunity to prepare. And so there's no reason to fear. By and large, the only reason to fear would be if you ignore uh, the warnings, if you will, and uh, pretend like nothing's coming at all. That would be the cause for fear. If we didn't know the storm was coming or if we just pretended um, that it wasn't. Proverbs 27, 12 says, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Well, I I offer that little uh, analogy because most of us can relate to that if you've lived here for any length of time and you've lived through those hurricanes and you know that people elsewhere maybe have a fear that is unwarranted in that regard. Um, So it's it's maybe an analogy we can hang some of this uh, message, this series on because something similar could be said about the future. If we have some idea of what is coming, we can prepare and not fear. In fact, in more general terms, we could say, are you afraid of the future? Well, no, because we always know it's coming. We don't know exactly, uh, precisely what's coming, but uh, we always have some good idea. But we can prepare for it and not fear. In fact, I would say, before we go any further this morning uh, and in the the weeks to come, let's say this together. This will be uh, one of our... uh, Uh, mottos or sort of battle cries, Uh, let's say together what you see on the screen. We will not fear, we will not lose heart. Let's say that again. We will not fear, we will not lose heart. We want God to shine some light on what in the world is going on that we might have some perspective uh, as to what's coming, that we might know how to prepare for what's coming, but we will not fear and we will not lose heart. We will just have our eyes opened a little bit to what it is that he's doing in his world. What his plan A looks like and how we are to participate in it. But there are generational dynamics at work in our day that were at work in the day of Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the generation that we just read about. Generational dynamics that may tell us something about what's coming down the road. Well, 1 Kings chapter 12 describes, as you read there, division, the division of the kingdom of Israel into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. If you read the Bible after this point, you will, hear, you will, you will read that the people of God are referred to as Israel or Judah. Separate kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And that will be the case, as it said here in this passage, so they've been in rebellion to this day, the time that was written, and it continued to be uh, the case down through the centuries. Their society was fundamentally reordered on the series of events that we just read about. Politically, socially, religiously, geographically, their life as they knew it was fundamentally reordered as these events unfolded. And there's a pattern at work um, in this series of events and in the backstory um, that had unfolded in the decades preceding it. And that pattern illustrates how generational change is the wheel that drives history forward. 
That's really the big idea of this morning's message. And I'd say maybe the, uh, the overarching big idea of this series that I'm going to offer here. Generational change is the wheel that drives history forward. Or at least it's, it maybe is a wheel. But it is a wheel that turns and it turns forward. And you can't turn it backward and you can't keep it from turning. I'm previewing a little bit of what's to come. But it, it is, there is generational change is always turning and it is the wheel that drives history forward. And we, we see that illustrated um, again in the events that we read about in 1 Kings chapter 12 and in the kind of historical background. So I mainly want us to observe those generational developments in this story this morning. And then uh, next week, begin considering the implications of it. So again, I say, I say that some for, for my own sake of all that I want to say about even what we just read. All that I want to explain about some things I just we'll do we'll do some of that. Hopefully, we'll do it justice in the weeks to come. But this morning, I really I mainly want us to see the pattern, okay, that's illustrated here. And uh, I, I'd I'd like one of your takeaways to be just trying to sort of take note of the qualities or characteristics that sort of define each generation that we look, look at in this story, okay? So there's a whole bunch of scripture I'll, uh, I'll, I'll cite for us as well, but there's really just a handful of things for you to try to actually walk away with. But I want to look at the snapshot of David, Solomon, and Rehoboam. There's a lot of historical background um, that kind of gives context to what we read here in this chapter together. David as many of you know, spent most of his adult life in conflict and war. It pretty much defined his life, going from one battle to another, one conflict uh, to another. And yet he was a man after God's own heart, really in a, um, almost a unique way, certainly an exemplary way, a, a, a way that he was held out as a model for the people of God um, all the way down through the New Testament era. He wanted to build a house for God. He drew up plans for a temple, actually. He raised money. He gave money to the temple and raised money. So, he, so he, did, he did the architectural drawings and the capital campaign for the temple. But then he didn't actually get to build the temple. God wouldn't allow him to build it. It says in 1 Chronicles 28, 2 and 3, King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building. But God said to me, You may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. Though David was a, a man after God's own heart and made preparations even for that, that temple, um, he, he wasn't able to build it. God didn't allow him to build it because what, what characterized his life was conflict and warfare. And so we, we see in David something of a, a representative of a generation that was defined by struggle, strength, and sacrifice. One of the things uh, I, I might encourage you to do is in your own mind, see if you make the connections between the pattern that unfolded uh, from David to Solomon to Rehoboam 
and a similar pattern that we have seen unfold in the U.S. over the last few generations. Those are the dots that we're going to connect ultimately. But David represented a generation who spent a lot of their life in warfare. And therefore, life was characterized by struggle. Struggle made them strong. And struggle required from them sacrifice. That defined that generation. It formed them and shaped them in many ways. In fact, David was really king for what we might think of as two generations, 40 years. But he represented that period of their history that was defined by, those generations defined by struggle, strength, and sacrifice. Then his son, who took the throne after him, was Solomon. And Solomon inherited not only a throne and a kingdom, uh, but a, a period of peace. But he inherited a throne that in many respects he was fit to inherit. He was up for the task, in other words, in terms of just his capability. He was talented, utterly brilliant. Again, as you know, if you've been a student of the scriptures, of course, he wrote many of the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and just what it says records about him and his uh, just unparalleled wisdom. And a brilliant man. First Kings 4, uh, 29 through beginning of 31 says, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed all the wisdom of the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men. So Solomon's generation was raised in that era of struggle and strength and sacrifice. Some of you were as well. Raised by parents whose life was characterized that way. And you know how that uh, shapes you because of the things that A generation who lived their life, their adult life, just in one struggle after another, it shapes the values that they embrace and embody and that they teach to their children. Values of things like sacrifice, hard work, loyalty, etc., etc., etc. Solomon and his generation were raised by David's generation. And so they, they, they learn a lot of those values. They're taught and they're caught. Right? It's just, it's in the air, it's in the air that you breathe, so to speak, growing up. Just in the atmosphere, those values of that, of that sacrificing, strong, struggling sort of generation are just absorbed, imbibed by the next generation. But here's the I was going to say the catch. It's not really a catch. But Solomon's generation inherited an era of peace. They embrace all of those same values, but they don't have to fight a war with those values. They get to apply those values and that work ethic and that strength in an era of peace. Which means they can, 
build stuff. They can prosper, accumulate, in Solomon's case, unimaginable wealth. And he built a temple, he built a palace for himself. It says in Ecclesiastes, he built gardens, uh, parks, all kinds of things. He was able to build because he lived in an, in, in an era that was free of all the conflict and opposition. You, you understand the, the contrast there? And it's reason enough for many of us in this room to pause and be thankful for what we inherited. There were generations who went before us who, who fought the battles, literally, who, who, who faced the struggles and gave us a lifetime full of opportunity. That we aren't smarter and that we aren't more talented and we aren't more hardworking. Maybe in some cases less so. But in our, in our generation, we've seen... Uh, the, the, the sort of poster children of, of, of applying that sort of hard work and ingenuity in an era of peace and prosperity are the Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musks of the world. When the generations before, him, before them, every bit as brilliant, were inventing the atom bomb instead. You see, the difference in the circumstances that a generation was raised in uh, makes a difference into how their talent and ingenuity and resources are applied. Solomon's generation inherited an era of peace and it became an era of prosperity. Again, un unparalleled in their history. His wisdom was known around the world and he amassed unimaginable wealth. And so... We could say where David's generation was, was uh, characterized or defined by struggle, strength, and sacrifice, Solomon's generation was defined by peace, prosperity, and productivity. But there's an unfortunate footnote to that in Solomon's case. Because Solomon, as probably uh, many of his contemporaries, became overindulgent and self-gratifying. It's easy enough to do when you, can, when, you can, when you can have anything you want to try to have it all. In fact, he says that himself in Ecclesiastes 2.10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. He goes on to say it was vanity. <laughs> And grasping after the wind. There's wealth and wisdom and all those kinds of things that he's reflecting on. But because he could have anything he wanted, he tried it out. And it wasn't satisfying to him, he said. But uh, the, the real problem for him was he did the same thing with women. 1 Kings 11, 3 and 4 says that he had 700 wives... That just, that just sounds like a bad idea, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his hearts, his heart 
when, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. It's exactly what God warned him of doing. Don't multiply wives to yourself. They'll turn your hearts away. And they did. There's a real good chance, of course, if you've got 700 wives and 300 concubines, that's not going to go well for you. (laughs) But not only... uh, well, Well, let me say this. Here's why that's especially relevant to our passage here this morning. Because 1 Kings 11... Verses 11 through 13 says, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Not only could Solomon not prevent the upheaval that was coming, his sin was the primary cause of the upheaval. Let's sit on that one a minute. Because if you read 1 Kings 12 without having read 1 Kings 11, you would be struck by the foolishness of Solomon's son. And he was plenty foolish, right, by himself, right? Didn't need help being foolish. As a matter of fact, he had help and he, he ignored it. He had some wisdom offered to him from the old men and he just, he, he, he spurned it. He was foolish right by himself. Made just a colossal mess of the kingdom but what first kings 11 tells us is that that came about because of the sin of solomon that rehoboam's generation paid for the sins of solomon's generation of solomon specifically and here's the thing um, as we, as i just said Earned it fair and square. Uh, Rehoboam earned it too, right? He, did, he, he made his own foolish decisions that were the immediate cause of the consequences that followed. And yet it's sort of a, a chain of events set up, unfolding, rolling along toward that end because of the sin of Solomon. He couldn't, not only could he not prevent the upheaval that was coming. He, his sin was the underlying cause of it. And see, the cruel irony of that is you read through Ecclesiastes, this is another thing that he laments, is, you know, what's, what's it worth accumulating all this wealth? You don't know who's going to inherit it and whether they're going to spend it wisely enough or not. Now, now, Solomon died before Rehoboam became king. He did not see these events unfold, but he could see it coming. You understand what I'm saying? And he had a sense of this very thing. He, he, he saw what was emerging even before the worst of it was played out. That he's amassed this great wealth and you don't know who's going to have it after you and whether they're going to steward it well. And he had a pretty good sense they wouldn't steward it well. And sure enough, that's what happened. But that's Solomon's generation defined by prosperity and peace and productivity 
And then we have Rehoboam's generation. And 1 King 12 really describes what he is best known for. It's not the only thing said about him in Scripture, but this is really his legacy, if you will. Uh, there's a little more in the chapters that follow here and also in Second Chronicles. But he was 41 years old when he became king. This is an interesting little, um, I don't know, it's, it's more than trivial because it's included in the Bible, but it's just an interesting little fact to me, um, particularly because one of the things we see in the contemporary world that around the age of 40 is when a generation enters, it sort of comes of age. A generation comes of age around the age of 40. They begin taking on positions of more senior leadership in business, in the military, in politics, and so on. It's not that there are none of them before that age and none of them after that age, but it's, it, it really is a sort of a coming of age milestone. And, and that, I think that's, that's actually significant in some of what we'll talk about in the weeks ahead. Not so much that that was true of Rehoboam. I just find it uh, really quite interesting he, that it says he was 41 years old when he became king. And when a generation turns 40, we feel a paradigm shift. You, you may have never made that connection before. It's one of the reasons I wanted to do this series is to shine light when I say what in the world is going on that one of the things that's helpful to be illuminated is the fact that when we, the generational change is just turning, but when we see a generation uh, sort of at its sort of average age reach around the age of 40 to 45, we feel a cultural paradigm shift and we're wondering what, what just happened. And often we go on not really knowing, not ever finding out the answer to that. More on that again in the weeks to come. But Jeroboam had been told by a prophet that God would tear the kingdom away from him. Away from Solomon's son, that is. Uh, so on one hand, he knew what he was participating, but on the other hand, again, he's, he's responsible. He made his own poor decisions, and he perverted worship. I don't know if you really picked up on that in the latter part of this chapter. That all that we see, the, the, the sort of, all the ingredients that go into this stew that they're cooking here. You got Rehoboam's folly, his uh, failure to heed wisdom. The, we've got the prophecy against Solomon unfolding. But you have Jeremiah, or not Jeremiah, rather Jeroboam, who totally perverted worship. Read back through the last section of that chapter, maybe this afternoon, and see how many times it says that he made or he decided, I mean, he made up a system of worship and deliberately deceived the people because he was afraid they would go back to David. And there are a couple things uh, that I might say uh, about that just parenthetically that we'll sort of put a hook in and come back to in the weeks to come. But number one, that the people were easily deceived. If you, didn't, if you don't know what I'm making reference to, uh, one of the things Jer it says Jeroboam did is he made golden calves and came out and said, behold your gods. 
Now, some of you have read the Bible to know, I've heard that one before. They did that at Mount Sinai. And it was one of the things, I mean, God is is ready to uh, sort of pour out wrath against them, more or less. How in the world can the people of God have somebody come out before him and say, behold your gods, worship these golden calves, and they don't know the idolatry that that is. The short answer is they don't know their history. People are easily deceived, easily deceived, soft clay in the hands of sinister people when they do not know their history. And I will say this, lest we think anybody else is guilty of that. In in a certain respect, in fact, even to some extent uh, with regard to worship, evangelicals uh, among Christians are some of the most willfully ignorant people of our history. It's willfully ignorant. Evangelicals are reinventing worship every generation and think we're right to do so, that somehow we can just worship however we want to. And there's lots we have freedom to do, but there's a whole lot we are forbidden from doing. But our problem is that we're, we're ignorant of any consideration of that and disregard any consideration of that because we just willfully put anything of history uh, in sort of in, in, the, in the background and in an academic category that we're not interested in. And in some ways, I'm afraid, probably are guilty of the same kinds of sins as Jeroboam was. That's another sermon for another day as well. And, I'm, and not necessarily for this series of sermons. It's not directly on point. But the people were deceived because they didn't know their history um, and uh, just subject to the worst kind of deception. But even so, that generation, or maybe not even so, maybe because of that or, or, or partly because of that, Rehoboam's generation was defined by crisis, conflict, and calamity. This this crisis emerges. There's conflict for their lifetime. They, they, They were at war with one another. If we read on in the next chapters of 1 Kings, you see they were, Judah and Israel were at war with each other for the whole lifetime of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Crisis, conflict, and calamity. Calamity that changed uh, the whole fabric of their society permanently. It reordered, again, the, the whole landscape politically, socially, religiously, geographically. So you have a, the, the, the story, we're going we're gonna to sort of uh, tie a bow around this, as I say periodically, and, and, uh, and, and leave it for later. But what we have is, over the course of, um, from David's generation through Rehoboam's, a generation of honorable people defined by 
strength, struggle, and sacrifice, who raise a generation to whom they give an inheritance of a throne and a kingdom and the peace to grow it so that that generation is defined by peace and prosperity and productivity. And their children, and again, really, Solomon's actually a king for what we would think of as two generations, 40 years. But the generation that followed, uh, their generation, life for them was defined by crisis and conflict and calamity. And, and, and one, of, one of the things, again, for us to take away is uh, in some ways it was the doings of that generation. But in other, way, in other ways, it was what they, were, is what they were given. They inherited crisis. And there's a pattern at work um, today and over the course of American history even. In fact, even before American history we might say, a pattern at work operating that was illustrated here um, in the lives of David and Solomon and Rehoboam. And that's what we want to, to, to shed more light on in the weeks to come, that we understand some of uh, what it is that has been transpiring over the course of our history and continues to in the way of generational change that drives history. Because one of, the reasons, one of the reasons we're interested in that, I said at the outset, is number one, that there may be calamity still out ahead of us. But we're not going to fear that. Uh, we're just going to shine light on it to the extent we can, prepare ourselves for it to the extent that we can, um, and adapt to the history that is unfolding and rolling on because try as we might, we cannot reverse the wheel. And the reason, I, the reason I finish here is because we do try hard to reverse the wheel. That's probably another one of the patterns that's present in generations throughout history. As we try, we try to recover the past that we lived in our own glory days. But, but we can't move back. We can only move forward. And we can move forward uh, prepared because we have a, a perspective on what God is doing. Um, or we can be dragged forward frustrated. Which sounds better to you? We can move forward, adapted, and prepared, or we can be dragged forward, frustrated because we can't get the doggone thing to move in reverse and go back to like we want it to be. But the good news is, always, and I really mean this, that God, uh, God is always at work. And his plan is unfolding um, our, our call is to, is to discern that to the degree that we can and participate with him rather than to wrestle against it. 
And that's what ought to give us a measure of excitement even as we enter 2022 with the opportunity to re-engage God's world. Lord, would you show us just in some small measure what in the world is going on that we might be equipped to engage it as you would have us. Let's pray together. Well, Father, thank you for uh, your word and for your sovereign lordship over all of creation and all of human history. And Lord, we do pray in the weeks to come and really in the months and year ahead that you would give us discerning hearts to discern the times that we live in. That we might prepare ourselves well enough, equip ourselves well enough that we can live confidently, expectantly, and boldly without fear as your ambassadors in the world. So God, I pray that you would just um, make clear to us what it is you want to see in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.